Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This time we are going over the events of December 2020 and I'm joined as ever by my colleague CJ McKinney. My name is Colin Young. Um, it feels a bit like asylum month this month, but it's not the only thing we're covering, but there's quite a lot of asylum material to go over. We've got some important changes to the immigration rules on claiming asylum and on safe third countries, um, an interesting case on military service and refugee status. We've got a big case on asylum accommodation delays, um, a report on the UK statelessness procedure, not one but two cases on the treatment of trafficking victims, and a slightly odd Scottish case on how country guidances work. Um, we're then going to move on to talk about the rights to work for EU citizens with pre-sale status, deportation, and the latest Home Office plan for dealing with all of this case law, which, spoiler alert, is basically to stop it happening in the first place by stopping off, sort of cutting off access to the Court of Appeal. Um, if you want to claim CPD points or hours for listening to this, then um, sign up as a member at Free Movement, and um, we've got access to um, well over 100 hours of CPD training materials on the website these days. Okay, CJ, you get started, please. Sure. Uh, we'll do that change to the immigration rules to do with asylum claims that you mentioned. This is HC1043, enforced since the 31st of December. And big alarm bells with that, because the basic thrust of it is that the Home Office can refuse to even consider asylum claims from people who have passed through a so-called safe third country, such as France, for example. And the way this is being done is to make it easier for an asylum claim to be deemed inadmissible so that the Home Office won't grant it, won't refuse it, but will just sort of go, la la la, we're not listening, we don't see you. And there were inadmissibility rules before, but previously the safe third country had to agree to take the person back and consider their asylum claim. And now the rules don't have that safeguard. There's sort of a weaker qualification saying that if removal to a safe third country within a reasonable period of time is unlikely, only then will the claim be treated as, as admissible. And your analysis, Colin, I know you've been thinking that, about this a lot. You, you reckon this will leave asylum seekers in limbo, just not having their claim even considered for ages and ages? Yeah, I mean, the people are rightly very concerned that this could lead to actual removals to supposedly safe third countries. And it doesn't have to be a country through which the person traveled. It could be any country in the world. So you, you could get people being shipped off to you know really remote, potentially dangerous countries if they agreed to take these people. Um, I'm not, I could turn out to be very naive for saying this. I'm not that worried about that, at, certainly at this stage, because there's no sign the UK has actually reached any such agreements. Um, so it's not a, a practical prospect at the moment. And I'm not really expecting it to be, to, to become so. My main concern, certainly in the short term, is that these rules are just going to lead to even worse delays in the asylum system where people have their cases sat on for um, even longer than is already the case. We've, we've reported on this on Free Movement repeatedly. Delays in the asylum decision-making process at the early stages have become chronic. They were really bad before the pandemic. They've become even worse now. This is just going to make it worse. And that's, you know, it's really bad public policy in my view because um, for genuine asylum seekers um, who, who, who are refugees, you know, ultimately who are going to be recognised as refugees, um, we just want them to be able to get on with their lives and get started in the United Kingdom as soon as possible. You don't want to punish them and make their lives miserable for a year or two before then allowing them to stay and potentially qualify for citizenship and so on later down the line. And also for, for people who aren't refugees, you know, it's if, if they are ultimately going to be removed, then it's much better to do that sooner rather than later, you know, after years of, of being settled in the UK and stuff. 
um, and, and potentially making family links and friendships, you know, friendship circles and, and so on. Um, so this is just, I think, really, really awful public policy, basically, as well as there being this threat, perhaps, you know, on the horizon of actual safe third country removals at some further point down the line. Um, at the time where we're recording this, it's the, what is the, the date today is the 7th of January. Um, I've just been writing a, a bigger, sort of longer briefing on this, which we're hoping to get on the website in the next couple of days. So um, there'll be more from that as a from more on that from us in January. Grand, we'll leave uh, further analysis for that briefing, but there's definitely a lot to say and it's uh, a very concerning issue. Uh, continuing with asylum, there have been some important court judgments in the past few weeks. First of all, asylum accommodation, so government housing for destitute asylum seekers. Chronic delays in getting people housed through the system, uh, which is bad because they end up on the streets. But uh, the High Court has now put its foot down on this. There was a case uh, in which I suppose the key issue was to what extent the Home Office is responsible in public law for delays in housing that are caused by the private contractors who are actually supposed to provide the housing. And the High Court said that the Home Office has to properly monitor the performance of these contractors, monitored in some detail, and in particular looking at the outcomes for vulnerable groups like disabled people, as as one of the claimants in the case was, rather than just looking at the average length of time it takes asylum seekers in general to get housed, because that can mask serious problems for vulnerable groups and that could be unlawful um, and that was the outcome of the case a declaration that um, the home office has been in breach of equality law because of failing to honor these contracts and there was even a thousand pounds damages for each of the claimants which is uh, unusual so that case dma and others 2020 ewhc 3416 admin yeah, it's, and I, one of the things I want to just sort of pick up on from the case, and it's, it's a great result. Um, it's it's also there's, there's a, a little passage or a little sentence or two from the judge, which I, I think makes the most compelling case I've ever seen actually for for what some people call strategic litigation, which I, I tend to be a bit sceptical about the kind of big strategic litigation. Sometimes it works really well, like the challenge to the fast track detention rules, but often you know because of the the nature of the English and Welsh legal system, there's no sort of strong legal peg to hang a lot of these kind of challenges off. And like you know, countries with a written constitution. Um, but there's a really strong argument here, which is um, the, the Home Office was saying that basically the court shouldn't look at the systemic position and that the sort of general monitoring, but should leave individual claimants to bring legal challenges. So a bit strange from the Home Office saying there should be more legal challenges on an individual basis rather than, you know, one big sort of systemic legal challenge. And um, the, the judge goes on to say, if the system is operating unlawfully and the court does not address this, then it's case by case involvement simply becomes part of the system. Um, and an unlawful system at that. So I, I thought that was a very interesting kind of take on the need for that kind of um, more more general look at a whole bunch of cases together rather than leaving it sort of individual litigation. Let's look then at some more specialised asylum issues. And there has been some litigation around asylum seekers fleeing the military draft in Ukraine, a upper tribunal, a country guidance case uh, from the upper tribunal, indeed, on this issue. And the headline finding was that a draft dodger isn't a refugee uh, in this context unless they personally were being required to participate in war crimes. And it's not enough if you're drafted into the Ukrainian army and the army is 
in general, demonstrably committing war crimes and you'd be sort of a part of that system, it has to be reasonably likely that you would be directly or indirectly involved yourself. Uh, so that's perhaps disappointing for people in that position. Uh, that case, PK and OS, Basic Rules of Human Conduct, Ukraine, CG, 2020, UK, UT, 314, IAC. Yeah, it's an interesting case. And the legal team, I think, says that they're going to try and take that aspect of it up to the, the Court of Appeal. There was um, there was some positive um, stuff from it as well, because the upper tribunal accepts in this case that any kind of punishment, um, which is um, anything more than trivial, basically, um, is potentially would amount to persecution if done for a convention reason, which which legally is, is surely right, but it's good to hear the, the upper tribunal accepting, uh, which they hadn't, I think, the first time around with this case. This has actually um, already been um, determined and, and sent back for, for further consideration once already. Let's look at that uh, slightly weird country guidance case that you mentioned at the outset. Um, and we should maybe clarify what country guidance cases are. They're basically special rulings that change the law to do with refugee status for a particular group of people. And the issue in this case was, do judges have to apply country guidance rulings to cases that they've already heard, but they haven't sent out their decision yet? Uh, and the upper tribunal has uh, clarified that a judge in this position would have to re- revise their ruling, even if they've already written it and they're about to send it out. They have to revise it to take account of a country guidance change. So even if the decision is made, the judgment's been written up, but still needs to be changed um, if it's not being emailed out. Um, so that is the case of NRS and another, NA Libya in Scotland, Iraq. Yes, that is the title of the case. It doesn't sound like it makes sense, but it does. Uh, 2020 UKUT 349 IAC. And that was, uh, as you said, Colin, a case that was specific to Scotland, but it was confirming a rule that's already the case in England. So if you didn't know that was the case for England, uh, you do now. Yeah, and nothing really to add on this one, other than that the official headnote seemed to say, the opposite of what the actual case said, um, which we've we've pointed out in the in, in our write up, a bit bit confusing that. Yeah, not not helpful. Anyway, uh, finally on asylum and statelessness, if you are interested in that issue, there's been a big review of Home Office policy on statelessness by the UK Office of the UN Refugee Agency, and they have lots of suggestions for improvements, as one might expect, although expressed fairly gently because they have to keep up a relationship with the Home Office. Uh, but useful to have a look at the reports. Um, Judith Carter at the University of Liverpool, who's a real expert on statelessness, uh, helped write our summary of the report. Uh, so thanks to her. And the uh, both the report and our summary were published on the 16th of December, if you want to have a look on the website. Let's turn then to human trafficking and a couple of important cases there. The first on uh, the ban on asylum seekers working and that affects uh, trafficking victims uh, as well. So the claimant in this case had received a positive reasonable grounds decision. That is to say the Home Office thought she might be a trafficking victim, but she hadn't yet received a conclusive grounds decision that she definitely was or wasn't a victim. And in the period between these two decisions, she wanted to work as a cleaner. Um, but as a general rule, asylum seekers can only work in shortage jobs and the cleaning is not a shortage job. Now, the Home Office has discretion to make exceptions to that general rule, but its written policy on the issue didn't actually tell decision makers that there was a discretion that they'd use. It just said the rule is that people can only work shortage jobs, full stop. 
no mention of a discretion. And that setup has now been declared unlawful because uh, of the impact on trafficking victims in particular, like the claimant in this case. So as I read it, like the, the reasoning is specific to trafficking, but the discretion that the Home Office now has to advertise is applicable to asylum seekers more generally. Uh, certainly that's my understanding. So helpful for trafficking victims and others. Um, that is IJ Kosovo 2020 EWHC 3487 admin. And just to, just to note that on Bailey, the case name is given as LJ Kosovo, not IJ Kosovo, but I think that is an error. Yeah, and say it's a helpful case. It's not unhelpful, but I think if anybody really expects asylum seekers or trafficking victims to be granted permission to work outside the shortage occupation list after this, they're, they're going to be sorely disappointed, I'm sorry to say. And it, it's a... Yeah, and the way that this was being reported in the media was um, wrong, probably, frankly speaking, um, and, you know, unhelpful for raising expectations, because all that we're seeing here in this case is that it was unlawful for the policy not to make clear that there is a discretion. Um, it, you know, the way that that discretion get ex- gets exercised is, is you know, not commented on by the court. And we can expect the Home Office basically to refuse in, in almost all cases, I would have thought. Um, so it, it's unlikely to lead to uh, a substantive change of policy. But, you know, in, in some cases, it might be worth applying. And in trafficking, you know, trafficking victims would be one such category of case where there's some re- rehabilitative kind of benefit to the person um, to help them settle down and, and, and adjust and so on and, and recover from what's happened to them. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's a good outcome, but it's just not as good as, as, as was perhaps being um, suggested by some. There was, however, another uh, positive judgment uh, relating to Home Office policy on trafficking victims. So you can tell us if this one is any more uh, substantive. This is to do with the system for granting permission to remain in the UK for people at that same stage of the process as the lady in the last case. So they've been confirmed as a potential victim, but they're waiting for their final decision. And Mr. Justice Moston held that the Home Office has to come up with a policy that gives people in this position some kind of stability in terms of their right to live in the UK while they're waiting for that final decision. Um, And that's important for people because of the staggering delays that they face when they're waiting for this final decision. So in this case, there was 322 days just between getting the reasonable grounds decision and getting the final decision. And and she just had no idea of her status in the meantime. So again, I don't know if it means they the Home Office must come up must actually grant people leave or just have a policy on whether they grant leave. Maybe you know more than me. Um, but just to give the citation EOG twenty twenty EWHC three three one zero admin. I think this this is a good example of this being more concretely good news, actually, this one. Um so the judge slightly unusually um makes a sort of positive order um, as, uh, uh, to, to require the Home Office to do something, um, which is to formulate a policy that grants such persons interim discretionary leave on such terms and conditions as are appropriate both to their existing leave positions and to the likely delay that they will face. And, um, you know, that, that, that is actually sort of quite strongly worded in, in judgy terms, uh, for, for the outcome of a judicial review case. So this, this, this really one, this does look like good news and, um, the Home Office will have to now draw up that policy. Um, you know, I sort of half expect them to make it as restrictive as possible because that's just the nature of the Home Office. It doesn't have to be, you know, these are, 
um, by their nature, you know, a, a significant number of them are going to be very vulnerable people and are going to be found to be very vulnerable people ultimately. I, my, one of the big takeaways from um, this for me was just how awful the delays are actually in trafficking cases, because that's not something I'd picked up from the asylum statistics. There's no separate sort of trafficking statistics that I've ever seen. And um, the delays are just appalling in this area, even worse than in, in sort of mainstream asylum cases. Um, you'd have thought that if anything, the Home Office would be trying to um, expedite these cases because they're particularly vulnerable people. Um, but it, it, it's it's the opposite. It's the same with children as well. Children actually are subject to more delay by the Home Office rather than less, um, which is the opposite of how you'd hope it to be. Yeah, I think there was a challenge uh, last year to uh, the trafficking system uh, delays and the Home Office won us, I think, partly due to sort of promises that they would speed up the system. And by the time this case came around, uh, Mostyn was looking at the projections versus what had happened and said, well, that that didn't happen. If anything, it's gotten worse. Anyhow, um, EU citizens, there is another big case there, and that's to do with uh, benefits for EU citizens with pre-settled status, uh, in particular universal credit. And the issue here was that the DWP hasn't been accepting pre-settled status as automatic proof of having a right to reside in the UK. So you're fine with settled status, but with pre-settled status, they've been insisting that you prove your right to reside basically the old-fashioned way by showing that you're a job seeker or whatever it might be, and that that's much more onerous than just saying, I have pre-settled status, clearly I'm a resident. Um, and also very harsh, given that there is a crisis, economic crisis and people need uh, the safety net. But there is hope because the Court of Appeal has uh, now ruled against the government overturning a decision of the High Court, ruling that uh, it has acted unlawfully in this respect. Um, unfortunately, this doesn't mean that people can now just go to the job centre and flash their pre-settled status and get universal credit right away because the government is trying to appeal to the Supreme Court and the effect of the judgment has been stayed until late February while uh, that uh, process works itself out. I think on the the, fa- the Court of Appeal judgment was actually split two to one. Um, I don't know if that makes it perhaps more likely that the Supreme Court will, will take up the case. Yeah, I guess so. Um, where, where there's sort of really credible argument um, the other way, which which there, there usually has to be for it to be a split decision. I, I have to confess, this one came as a bit of a surprise to me because I'm, you know, as, as my the extent of my knowledge of EU law is essentially sort of free movement law and particularly the qualification directive. Um, and this case doesn't end up turning on the qualification directive. It's more on the principle of non-discrimination and some cases that just, you know, I, I wouldn't normally need to have have looked at so um, it's a really good result uh, it's really helpful for those with with pre-settled status assuming that that it is final and we'll just have to report on that as and when we find out yeah absolutely um i forgot to give the case name for that one it's fratila and tenace and secretary of state for work and pensions 2020 wca save 1741 So then appeal rights. The authorities want to make it harder to take an immigration case to the Court of Appeal. The uh, Ministry of Justice is consulting on stiffening the test for appealing to the Court of Appeal where a case has already been considered by both the first tier and upper tribunals. So at the moment, when you apply directly to the Court of Appeal for permission to appeal, the legal test is that the proposed appeal would raise some important point of principle or practice or there is some other compelling reason. And the MOJ want to change this so you would need reasons of exceptional public interest. So that's a higher bar to clear to get permission to appeal. There would also be a separate change, making it harder to appeal uh, the refusal of a judicial review. 
Um, and taken together, the two um, changes would, uh, they estimate, remove about 600 cases a year from being considered by the Court of Appeal, um, and probably most of them are immigration and asylum cases. Um, that's in England and Wales, and then there's a further proposed change that would make the test for appealing in Scotland uh, tougher. So that would change from arguable, arguable point of law to important point of principle or practice. So as you say, Colin, they're, they really uh, are trying to avoid adverse judgments by stopping the higher courts uh, hearing any cases to begin with. Well, it might thin out our podcasts a bit, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. But um, but but no, it's not it's not it's not a good thing at all. Um, yeah, it's my my concern when I was looking at this is that, that just the first thought that popped into my head when I read the proposed new test is that it potentially um, a deportation appeal by the Home Office might well be argued, at least by the Home Office, always to raise exceptional reasons of public interest, sort of reasons of exceptional public interest, whereas, you know, not so much so um, in other cases, because, you know, the Home Office definition of public interest is, um, is, is you know, rather one-sided when it comes to, to deportation, rather short-term when it comes to deportation, and the Home Office is the arbiter of public interest as far as the Home Office is concerned as well. Um, so I, I'm a bit worried that this would sort of build in a bit of litigation advantage to one of the parties to an appeal um how they worked out how it would cull 600 cases i, I don't really know but yeah well you know various different people are responding to this um and sort of urge people to to get involved with one of those sort of group submissions ilpa or firms or chambers um who, who are looking at um looking at making submissions because this certainly wouldn't be wouldn't be a helpful change Absolutely. The consultation closes on Monday, the 11th of January, so still a few more days to uh, have your say. Deportation. There has been a Supreme Court decision on deporting Zambrano carers. So these are uh, very loosely defined non-EU citizens whose right to be in the UK depends on them having caring responsibilities for a British child or, or perhaps sometimes a, an elderly relative. Uh, and that's a concept from EU law, uh, Zambrano, the case of Zambrano. So the Supreme Court was looking at what is the correct legal test that applies when a Zambrano carer is being considered for deportation. Uh, and Colin, you, you wrote up that case. What did it decide? Well, it's kind of, it's, it's one of those cases where it was a relatively short write-up because it, it didn't change the law. So it, it was being argued by the appellants in the case that so the, the phrasing used by the um, Court of Justice of the European Union in a, in a particular case meant that there was some sort of enhanced exceptional circumstances test that the Home Office would have to a show in order to justify deportation in a given case and basically the supreme court says no there isn't that's not what they meant by those words um so we're left with the test being as i think most of us understood it to be more or less um, which is basically eu law proportionality which is of course for those who sort of you know compare and contrast the law of the european convention on human rights and eu law is a very different beast to kind of article 8 style proportionality it's a much more robust um, um test um, but you know there isn't this basically it's that there isn't this exceptional circumstances test that that some people are reading into um, these cases because of the wording used by the the course of justice. Grant, so so no change there. Uh, that case Robinson Jamaica twenty twenty UKSC fifty three, and then a second deportation case to cover a, a pretty interesting pretty interesting case i thought and ian halliday has explained it very clearly so we're looking here at the rules on 
that the rules that say that someone's deportation is automatic if they receive a prison sentence of uh, 12 months or more, or a lower sentence than that, that causes quote unquote serious harm. So then what does serious harm mean to trigger automatic deportation? Um, and in this case, there was a Mr. Wilson who had been convicted of carrying a knife in a public place and sentenced to six months. Uh, and the Home Office considered that that offence was, was a serious harm offence. Um, and the Upper Tribunal uh, made a number of points about how you decide whether something is a serious harm or not. But in particular, they emphasised that just because knife crime in, in general causes serious harm or carrying a knife has the potential to cause serious harm doesn't mean that serious harm automatically follows in a particular case. So Mr. Wilson, in, on the facts, hadn't caused anyone harm. Uh, he hadn't threatened anyone with the knife. He'd just been found with it on him, said it was for his, his protection. Uh, so uh, in this case, there was no serious harm. And that seems like a sensible decision, really. Yeah, nothing to add. I mean, it's it, it, unusual to see um, deportation case being allowed in the upper tribunal. Um, and, um, you know, it, it seems sensible enough. I'm, I'd be interested to know if um, if this is going further, because I, I can see there is a, a counter-argument in a case like this of kind of serious harm could be serious social harm, essentially. Um, so, I, 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 yeah, and the Court of Appeal does like to overturn um deportation decisions which have been allowed by the upper tribunal <laughs> um so uh, i don't know I, I don't know if this one's going further or not but no it, it it seems like a sensible enough decision yeah well sort of that general idea of serious social harm was definitely what the home office was pushing so if uh, they get another chance in the court of appeal i'm sure they will revive it we're over time, as is traditional, um, but just uh, a couple of quick notes about uh, the new points-based immigration system for work and st- study visas uh, launched on the 1st of December. And we've got a bit of uh, coverage of that to flag. Um, we've concentrated on the skilled worker route, um, which used to be tier two general, so kind of the flagship work visa, really. Nicola Carter has written a simple guide to how you apply for the skilled worker visa. Uh, and Zina Lachawa has done a much more detailed look at settlement under the skilled worker route and, and in particular how that differs from tier two general. Um, we've also got training resources for members, updated introduction to the point, points based system, um, and a separate course on specifically what changed on the 1st of December from the old system to the new system. Uh, www.freemovement.org forward slash training. Um, and finally, just one last item, Colin. Um, this I think this was probably the most read article on the website this month, despite being really short, just to do with the minimum income rule for spouse visas, that notorious requirement that British citizens or settled people who want to sponsor uh, a partner to come live here have to earn above a certain salary. So sort of hits the poor who, who marry foreigners. It's long been controversial among I suppose the usual suspects, right, campaigners and charities, but now the um, Migration Advisory Committee, which is a much more, I suppose, neutral, um, some would say uh, close to the government organisation, a bunch of economists which writes weighty reports for the government, uh, they've weighed in saying this in their annual report. They say, we think now would be an appropriate opportune time to reconsider the minimum income requirements. And that's potentially a significant development, we think. Yeah, and hopefully it's a significant positive development. But I, I said on Twitter at the time, and it, you know, it could be a two-edged sword. It could cut either way, I suppose. Because um, one of the things I noticed when I was writing um, my book, Welcome to Britain, was that um, when it was being copy edited, I got picked up on uh, my calculation on the minimum wage and a, a comparison between that and the minimum income level. And I was um, accidentally using 
the difference between the minimum wage at the time that this was introduced in 2012 and the 18,600, which was huge. So the minimum wage at the time was about 12 to 13,000. So there's a huge gap between somebody earning the minimum wage and what they needed to um, earn in order to, to, to qualify to, to um, sponsor a spouse. But the minimum wage had increased very substantially by, by 2020 when I was writing this. And, um, you know, the, the, the gap is actually a lot less. And we could see the government putting it up. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the MAC originally proposed two levels. One was the 18,600. One was about £40,000 a year. Um, I, I, I struggle to really believe that that, that, that could happen. Um, but, you know, the, the, this current government does all sorts of things that I struggle to believe. So um, we, we'd hope and pray, really, that this one um, would ultimately lead to the level being lower. Um, but that's not necessarily going to be the case. I, th- I thought we were going to end on a positive note there. Ah, sorry, sorry. 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 <laughs> okay, well, I think that wraps up things for this month. I'm sorry to end on a, a negative note like that, but, um, but, but, but yeah, I have. So there we go. Okay, we will be back next month. Goodbye. <laughs>